I want to start by sharing a, a bit of information that, uh, that I have discovered over 35 years of life, uh, and that is that there are distinctly three kinds of, of movie watchers in the world. Three kinds of, of movie watchers. The first kind is, is my kind. It's the right kind of movie watcher. So if you're, if you're looking for which kind should I be, it's this first kind. And that is the quiet, analytical type of movie watcher. The quiet analyzers. You know, you watch movies. You don't say anything. You just sit there and, and you, you take it in. And you may have questions, but you keep them to yourself. Amen. You know, you just sit and listen. Thank you, John Tavius. That's the right kind of movie watcher. But there, you, as, as many of you know, there are other kinds of movie watchers, what we might call the dialoguers, a.k.a. the talkers. Now, the talkers somehow think that the characters in the movie can hear them when they talk to the television screen. You know what I'm talking about? You, some of you are talkers. You, you, you spend the whole movie talking to the characters. Uh-uh, get out of there. Don't do that. Why are you doing that? I told you not to do it. You spend the whole movie talking and then there's this third kind, which is kind of a subset of the, of the talkers, which is the question askers. The question askers. You ask questions the whole way through the movie. Now, this happens to be the, the kind of movie watcher my wife is. And so in the Lord's wisdom, he, he put me, a quiet analyzer, in the same home as a question asker to sanctify me, to, to help me grow in patience question askers the whole way through. What's going to happen? Who's guilty? Why did it do? Why did, why did that happen? What's, what's going to happen? How's he going to do it? And if you've ever watched a movie with a question asker, then you've probably found yourself saying at some point along the way, you know that this is the first time I've watched this movie too, right? Like I've never, I've never, I've never seen it. I don't know. I've, I've learned though that, that these, these question askers sometimes aren't actually addressing their questions to me. They're just they're just thinking out loud. They're just wondering the same things that I am internally asking. I would just never utter verbally. Because we all want to know, whether we're a talker or an analyzer or a, or a question asker, we, we all want to know what's going to happen. We, we all want things to work out and to end up okay. This is one of the reasons why we love movies, by the way, right? Because generally speaking, in a Hollywood script, there's some sort of resolution. We're going to get some sense of, of resolve, and we, we like that. In fact, we intuitively want things to turn out okay. We want our questions answered. We want some sort of punctuation mark at the end of the movie. And it's true not only of movies, it's true of our lives as well. We want to know that things are going to be okay. But how do we know that they will? How do we know that history is going to resolve itself? What, what confidence can we have that in the end there's hope? The, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, is actually aimed at answering that question. This, this book was written while the Apostle John was exiled on the island of Patmos. And, and while he was there, he experienced what he describes as, as a series of visions that, that depicted to him some heavenly realities. Revelation is, is actually written in the style of, of apocalyptic literature, which if you're unfamiliar with, means that it's full of imagery and symbolism. It's, it's sort of like a flip book of symbolic snapshots that illustrate truths in a really artistic way. And so the book of Revelation, maybe you're familiar with it or somewhat familiar, it's not meant to be interpreted overly literal. 
But it's best understood and interpreted by recognizing how the images in the book of Revelation are symbols that connect to the Old Testament, to to, to prophecies in the Old Testament, and how they point forward to Jesus and his victory over Satan's sin and death. John tells us at the very beginning of the letter that this book is is a revelation that God gave him of what will happen in the end of what must soon take place. And so in essence, what John is telling us is that God has pulled back the curtain for him and given him a glimpse into heavenly realities and into what's going to happen soon so that we can have hope in our present situation. It's a book aimed at giving hope to people with with questions and fears about the future, about how we can know for certain that things will turn out okay. And this was important for John. Right, Because John is exiled on the island of Patmos. He'd been exiled because of his faith. John had friends who were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. He had friends that had been killed for their faith in Jesus. He's looking around at a world and he's wondering, how in the world do we know that it's all going to turn out okay? That we win in the end. When will the wicked be judged and things be made right? That's the big question that John is wrestling with. And and we may feel some of that same angst this morning. In a world with instant access to every tragedy, every injustice, Every corruption immediately publicized on Twitter or on the local news. We're we're inundated with this ever-pressing reality that evil is present. We are surrounded by a world that has evil in it. Many times it feels as if evil is winning. A quick scroll through my Twitter feed this morning shows another young black male being dealt a blow of injustice. Just this morning, I discovered that in Sri Lanka, a series of coordinated bombs exploded in a terrorist effort to target Christians and that 207 people were killed, 450 more injured, according to the New York Times. We see these things and we wonder, how do we know that evil doesn't win in the end? How do we know that there's hope on the other side of our pain and our sadness and our sickness and even in death, and Revelation tells us. Revelation tells us how we know. In, in chapters 4 and 5 of, of Revelation, John is given a glimpse of heaven. In his vision, he's, he's taken up into the throne room of God. And, and what he sees gives him so much hope. And so we're going to focus our attention this morning on chapter 5. And from this passage, what I want to to see is, is three reasons why you and I have hope. Three reasons why we have hope. The first reason we see in this text is that we have hope because God is seated on the throne. God is seated on the throne. In, in chapter 4, when John is led into heaven's throne room, he encounters this one seated on a throne, and he says that this one seated on the throne shines in radiance. There's flashes of lightning and thundering appeals happening, and, and he says that there's four living creatures on each side of the throne and 24 elders that surround the throne and worship, crying out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And then as chapter 5 begins, John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals 
The first thing that the Apostle John sees as he's ushered into the heavenly courts is the unmistakable truth that God is on his throne. John sees in God's right hand a scroll with writing on it, both on the inside and on the outside. And when we unpack the Old Testament background of, to understand the meaning, the symbolism of this scroll that John sees here, we conclude that the scroll symbolizes God's decreed will. This scroll represents God's plan for history. It is the plan of redemption and of judgment. As Pastor John Piper explains, the vision is this, that God holds all of the future in his right hand, that he rules in the universe. And what he's communicating to John, what he's communicating to us by extension, is that he hasn't dropped the scroll. He hasn't lost the scroll the way some of us lose our keys. We... Or he hasn't written on the scroll in chicken scratch that he can't read. No, the scroll is still in his hand and it's perfectly legible. We we used to sing the song when we were kids. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. You remember that song? That's what John sees here. God is saying, I am on my throne. I am sovereignly ruling over the universe. My plans have not been lost. God has not been forced to call an audible. He's not playing defensive back, backpedaling, trying to keep everything in front of him the best that he can, doing doing the best with what he's dealt to to make things work out okay. No, God God is more like the writer of Remember the Titans. I, I figured since John Tavius... Reminded us of Remember the Titans on Friday. I better pull it back out on Sunday. If you were here at our Good Friday service, John Tavius referenced this movie. So I'm going to reference it again. God is like the writer of Remember the Titans. He, he knows every line of every character in the movie. He's the writer and he's the director. The script is in his hand. He knows how things are going to turn out. Now there are some sad parts to that movie if you've seen it. When Coach Boone is racially discriminated against, when Gary Bertier gets in that car accident. This movie's really representative of, of real life. In fact, it's based off of true events. And sometimes we wonder, where was God in that? Why did he let this happen? Why is that in the script? We don't always know why things are in the script, but rest assured that God himself does. And what God is here reassuring John of is that the worst imaginable things that he encounters in his life are no indication that God has abandoned the throne. We may not understand, but we don't have the full script. We're not the director. And the promise of Scripture is that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He's on the throne. The scroll is in his hand. The vision goes on, though. Verse 2. John says, "I, I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. John sees that this scroll that God holds in his hand is sealed with seven seals. One one person I read this week noted that 
the seven seals symbolizes the completeness or the perfection of God's plan. Seven is a number of completion in Scripture. And so this, this symbolizes God's perfect plan. But we also know uh, that in the first century, seals were used to authenticate and to protect important documents. And so a seal would inhibit just anyone from reading a scroll. It would be oftentimes stamped with the signet of, of a king's ring. And, and only those who had the authority of the king could open, open that scroll and, and read what was in it. You had to have the right clearance. And so God's scroll that John sees is sealed with seven seals, which means that God's perfect plan for the future is written, but it awaits the right person to execute it. John's vision of God seated on a throne is, is then suddenly interrupted by a voice who, who asks the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And it's maybe stated a little bit differently, but this is the question that we're all asking. Who can guarantee that God's plans will be fulfilled? Who can undo the evil that we experience and see all around us and make all things new? Who can assure us of the happy ending? Who can defeat death? Who can judge evil? Who can bring all of God's promises to pass and work all things together for good? We're all asking this question in different ways. Who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals? God, you say you're on the throne. And that you hold the scroll, but who can assure me that those plans are going to come to pass? Notice John's reaction to the question. He begins to weep. Because as he looks around, he, he sees no one worthy to take the scroll. He says there was no one worthy in heaven or on earth or under the earth. This is a way of saying that there was no one in all of creation who was worthy to take that scroll. There's no angel in heaven. There's no man on earth. There's, there's no being on, in the belly of the earth. No, no, no demon, no angel, no, no person who is qualified and able to bring God's plans of history to pass. And if there's no one found worthy to open the scroll, then there is no assurance that pain and sorrow will end. There's, there's no hope in our death. There's no eternal life. There's only weeping. This is the fear that we all feel. This is the question that's being asked all around us. As Professor James Hamilton puts it, if that scroll isn't opened, the Bible's promises don't come true. And hope is defeated. And so John weeps. He weeps in fear and he weeps in discouragement. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. Maybe if you're honest, you sit in the chair this morning and you feel defeated. You feel discouraged. You feel hopeless. Maybe your life feels out of control. Maybe it feels purposeless or confusing. Maybe, maybe it doesn't feel at all as if God is in control of the situation. That's how John feels in this moment. But I want you to notice what happens next. As he weeps, another voice speaks. This time not an angel, but one of the elders who was around the throne of God. And he speaks directly to John. It's as if he's, he gets John's attention. He, he meets eyes with him and he says, John, do not weep. Weep no more. Church, this is the message of Easter. 
This is the message of Easter in a nutshell. You can dry your tears of worry and of fear because there is one worthy to take the scroll. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, look, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one who has conquered This language of conquering communicates the idea of of earning the right to take hold of the scroll. It, It communicates the idea of being qualified and able to break the seals. There is one who has clearance. There is one who has authority. John describes this conqueror as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the, the root of David. This, this lion language comes from Genesis 49 when, when Jacob prophesied over his sons. When he prophesied over, over uh, Judah, he, he said that Judah is a lion's cub. And, and what that symbolized, what that meant was that there would be a king that would come out of the line of Judah. And then this language of the root of David comes from Isaiah 11.1, which which prophesies that out of the stump of Jesse will come a shoot. Isaiah has been in the midst of proclaiming judgment on Israel for their disobedience. They have walked away from the Lord. And and the picture that God gave Isaiah to give to the people was God's going to cut you down. You're going to go from a tree to a stump. But then there's this beautiful hope that out of that stump is going to come a shoot. And that's what this passage refers to. Jesus is this shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse. There is this hope of a, of a Messiah, of a coming king, a victorious ruler, a conqueror, who's going to right all wrongs, who's going to make everything right, who's going to lead God's people into victory. But I want you to notice how he conquers. John says, then I saw one, like a slaughtered lamb, standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. This lion, this conquering lion, this, this conqueror, this rescuer, this victorious one, he, he conquers, John says, by becoming like a slaughtered lamb. He conquers through his shed blood. Now, how is it that a slaughtered lamb gives us the comfort of victory? Is there a more pitiful sight in the world than a dead animal? A slain sheep. How is it that death leads to hope? Well, it means that shed blood of this conqueror atones for our sin. If you're familiar with this language, as many of John's original readers would have been, then you know that this is rich in in Old Testament Symbology in the, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel would, would slay an animal and they would put the blood of that animal on the altar as they came into God's presence. And the picture here was clear. I am a sinner in need of a savior. And I, I, instead of me being slain, this animal has been slain in my place to atone, to make payment for my sin. And that's the picture that God gives John of why there's hope, because there has been one who was slain in our place. His blood was shed instead of ours. Sin's debt has been paid by this conqueror, by this 
lion who is like a lamb who is slaughtered. But then notice something else with me. This slaughtered lamb, he stands in the midst of the throne room. Can I just make the obvious point here this morning that dead things don't stand? In other words, this this lamb who was slain lives though he died. He's alive, which indicates that death itself has been defeated. Though this lion who became like a lamb was slain, this lion stands victorious as a living victor. See, let me explain it to you this way. Your greatest concerns for the future are are these. You're going to die. And when you die, you're going to stand before God. You're going to die and you are accountable to God. And you will be judged. Your life will be judged for every thought and word and deed that you've ever done. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a sobering thought to me. I feel utterly exposed at the mere mention that I will stand before God and he will see right through me and I can't hide one errant thought from him. I can't hide the things that nobody else knows about, about me, God knows. And I'm going to be judged. But there's hope because John is given a vision of this slain lamb who stands alive and claims his blood for ours. Instead of us being held accountable for our sins, Jesus took our place. He was slain in our stead and he stands alive, which means that we have hope in the face of sin and we have hope in the face of death. And this is the second reason we have hope. We have hope because Jesus has conquered sin and death. Our greatest enemies have been defeated. Jesus is our victorious leader who leads us into victory over Satan and over sin and over death and over hell. As as Pastor James Hamilton says, because he has conquered, he can open the scroll and its seals so he can make all of God's promises come true. Every single one of them. John describes this lamb as having seven horns and seven eyes, which sounds really strange to us. We need to understand what's being said here. Horns symbolically represent power. They represent military strength. And to have seven horns means that this risen lamb has all power. And the seven eyes represent Knowledge. This risen lamb has all knowledge. Jesus sees all and he knows all. And now he boldly walks up to the throne and he takes hold of the scroll. He is now ruler over all. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has taken his place in history. History is in his hand. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus walked out of a grave early on a Sunday morning, he became the center of history. There's no escaping this Jesus. We can't escape him. You know, the the Jewish leaders tried and tried to do away with Jesus. First, they tried to trick him. They tried to trap him. Eventually, they realized they, they couldn't catch him. So they concocted a plan to get rid of him. The Romans crucified him. But even death couldn't hold him. And ever since, people have been trying to to distort or diminish or deny him, but there's no escaping Jesus. 
And so the question becomes for each one of us, what will we do with him? Will you reject him or will you join the chorus of heaven? In verses 8 through 14 of our passage, we see that when the lamb takes hold of the scroll, a celebration erupts. Last weekend, I, uh, like many of you, watched the Masters Tournament, which was incredible. It was an epic Masters Tournament. If you're not a fan of golf, shame on you. I grew up watching Tiger Woods, and so it was, it was so nostalgic and amazing to watch Tiger Woods after going so long without winning to win his 15th major. And as he entered... The, the 18th hole, you could see the throngs of people just surrounding the entire 18th hole and the green of the 18th. It was, just, it was just covered up with people who wanted to be there when it happened. And when Tiger tapped his putt in to win his fifth Masters tournament, the place erupted. This was the comeback story of comeback stories. But can I tell you, can I tell you that as as grand of a celebration as happened last week in Augusta, that it was the metaphorical golf clap compared to what happened in heaven when Jesus took hold of the scroll, when he walked out of that tomb on Sunday morning and defeated death. John is given a glimpse of heaven's throne room when Jesus walks out of that tomb alive. And, and he says, suddenly they began to sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. John is given this vision of, of heaven celebrating Jesus, but the vision is not just of angels' voices. It's a, it's a vision of a, of a future throng of people, thousands upon thousands of people from every tongue and tribe and, and language singing with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb. And I can't help but wonder, as John is given this vision of heaven, as he sees this crowd of people singing to Jesus, I can't help but wonder if he recognized any faces in the crowd. I can't help but wonder if he saw your face in that crowd. See, Jesus died and he rose again. He took hold of the keys of history. They're his. And what John is telling us in this passage is that history will culminate in this giant celebration with people from every generation and people from every nation under heaven gathered together in the most epic championship parade. It's going to be the most epic concert imaginable. Jesus is going to be the headliner. And, and this is where history is headed. This is where we're all headed to is, is this celebration so much bigger than Coachella. I mean, it's going to be the biggest celebration imaginable, and it's going to give way into eternity, to a new heaven and a new earth, an eternal dwelling with God where there's no pain and there's no sickness and there's no sin and there's no death. And that's the third reason we see we have hope in this passage. We have hope because the church is going to reign with Christ on a new earth. We're going to be with God forever. That's what John sees here. But the question I have is, will you be there? 
Will you be a part of this celebration? John tells us that through his shed blood, Jesus has purchased a people for God to be with him forever. And I just can't help but wonder if you are a part of that people. The way to know the answer to that question is simply to ask yourself this. Have I joined the chorus? Those who will sing the song in heaven are those who have already begun to sing it here and now. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven has already invaded earth, that eternity has already begun. This is the great mystery for us, that eternity has already started. Heaven has invaded, the king has come, and he has invited us into the song of eternity right now. And so the question for each of us is, is Jesus truly your song? Is he your joy Is Jesus your future? Is he your anchor? Is he your hope? Is he your peace? Those who will reign with Christ are those who anthem even right now. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and riches and honor and glory and blessing. Is that your heart's cry or do you sing some other song? Can I tell you something? You're going to hate heaven if you don't love Jesus. Because it's going to be all about him. And it will be the delight of your soul to sing and work and sing and work for all of eternity. And finding out more and more about this wonderful, beautiful, magnificent, lion-like lamb who was slain to save us, to redeem us, so that we could be with him forever. The Apostle Paul sums it up. When he says the saying is trustworthy, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Here's the question. Have you died to yourself so that you might find life in Christ? So that you might rejoice in him. For if we endure with Christ now, we will reign with him for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we were awestruck at the the imagery, the beautifully artistic way that you picture what is going on in heaven right now, of the victory that was won through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that it would stir up our affections. Lord, that we wouldn't be ho-hum drum about what Christ has done for us, that God, you became man, that you might suffer in our place, that you might conquer death and take us to be with you. Lord, awaken our our spirits to, to worship you, 
to rejoice in you. Lord, I pray for those this morning that truthfully in their heart of hearts, they would have to admit that Jesus is not their song, that Jesus is not their hope. God, I pray that he would become their hope this morning, that they would be able to sing a new song, the song that is being sung in heaven, the song that we will sing for eternity. Worthy is the Lamb. God, make us a hopeful people. No matter what we encounter in this life, God, we have hope because you are on your throne and Jesus has taken the scroll and he will bring all of your promises to pass. The tomb is empty. And so we have great reason to celebrate. Sin and death are defeated. And we will reign with Christ forever. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.